Today is Crossroads, 1 Samuel chapter 20. We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel and uh, just been learning a lot of neat little things about warfare and life as we just navigate through the scriptures. And so we'll see how this has to do with crossroads, but uh, just neat little things that the Lord's been showing me as we go through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you guide us. You give us these, um, just this, you, you direct our paths, as the scripture says. And so, Lord, when we come to places in life where decisions need to be made and we make those decisions, Father, we just pray that you would be in the midst of what's taking place. Pray, Father, that you would guide us and that you would lead us and that you would go before us. And help us, Lord, as we navigate through this thing called life. And so bless your word, Father. We lift it up to you and we just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So Saul would be the first king in the nation of Israel's history. Just a little introduction to chapter 20. And in that... Um, he would be head and shoulders, taller than everybody, and he would look royal. He would look like a king. Um, he has humble beginnings. He doesn't really want to be the king. He is fearful. Uh, there's certain things he says that he comes from uh, one of the least tribes in the nation of Israel, and his family is the least in that tribe, and uh, he has very good beginnings. Eventually, it gets to the point where his character is tested, And it comes out that he's a prideful man. And so we'll look at that toward the end of the study. But certain things are revealed and God rejects him as being king. He picks somebody who is similar in heart to him in that David is called a man after God's own heart. And the way that David is a man after God's own heart and kind of what we can learn from that is that David truly knows how to repent. He knows how to walk in humility with God. And so Saul still has authority. He still has the kingship or he's on the throne, if you will. Even though he's been rejected from the Lord, he's still occupying the palace. He still has that level of authority and he doesn't want to let it go. He feels threatened by David and so he ends up trying to kill David on two occasions by chucking a spear at his head. Um... As he does that, David realizes this is not safe, and he goes off to Naoth uh, in Ramah. And he goes there to to meet with uh, the prophet Samuel, and he talks to him, and eventually he's going to come back. But Saul gets wind, he gets uh, an understanding that David has gone to Naoth, and he sends these servants to go and bring him back so that he can kill him. And... Um, the first guy goes and he ends up prophesying. Spirit comes upon him and he's prophesying with Samuel the prophet. And David gets wind of that. Somebody tells David that that's what happens. He sends another guy. The same exact thing happens. And then he sends a third guy. And the same exact thing happens. So finally, Saul goes himself. And the spirit comes upon him and he begins to prophesy. And he disrobes. He takes his clothes off. And he lays bare naked before the Lord. 
And in my opinion, as I'm studying and I'm like, why is this happening? Like, why, Lord, would you even allow the Holy Spirit to come upon him and, and show him this? But I think it's just God's grace. And he's trying to show Saul, like, Saul, this is what you can have. If you would humble yourself, this is just a beautiful thing that you can experience. But Saul doesn't humble himself. And he's insistent upon his will. And so just a lesson for us that we need to be careful when we insist upon our will, when we demand of God that things need to look a certain way or be a certain way. And so we pick it up now in chapter 20, and that's right where we're leaving off. That's where we were in chapter 19. So verse 1 says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And so David has a genuine concern. Why am I being hunted? Why is your father coming to me where I'm, I'm in Naoth of Ramah with the prophet and I'm just trying to hide out? I don't want to bother anybody. I, I just, I don't get it though. Like, what am I doing wrong? Jonathan is David's best friend, but he's King Saul's son. And so David asks his friend, Jonathan, like, what am I doing wrong? Verse two, so Jonathan said to him, by no means, You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Jonathan isn't fully convinced yet. He will be in this chapter. But he's not fully convinced that David is going to be killed by his father, Saul, who is the king. In the last chapter, chapter 19... Saul requests of Jonathan and his men that they go find David and bring him to him so that he can be killed. And Jonathan ends up talking to his father Saul and says, why, what has he done to you? Look at all the good things that he's done for you and look at the good things that he's done for the nation of Israel. So why would you want to kill him? Saul reconsiders and he says, as the Lord lives, I'm not going to hurt him. You're right, I'm going to leave him alone. And so Jonathan is still under that persuasion that he had the conversation with his father and that his father no longer wants to kill him. And so he's letting David know, from my perspective, no, this is, he doesn't want to kill you anymore. Verse 3, then David took an oath again and said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved, but truly... As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David knows better. David knows that two spears were chucked at him in order to kill him by Saul. And he knows that three men were set after him in Naoth of Ramah to kill him. And he knows that Saul himself went to seek him out so that he can kill him. And so he's letting him know, Jonathan... You're not getting it. You you don't understand. On the level that I know, your dad wants to kill me. Verse 4, so Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, and notice he says, very angry, be sure that evil is determined by by him. 
Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring, your, bring me to your father? And so David just lets him know, all right, there's, there's, a, there's a new moon. There's a festival that we're supposed to be at. I'm not going to be there. My seat is going to be empty. Jonathan, you know what? Why don't you fill your dad out? If, you know, he questions why I'm not there, just tell him that I went to celebrate with my family and that's where I'm at. And if he's cool with that, then everything's going to be all right. Maybe he doesn't want to kill me. But if he's very angry. And so we need to watch that emotion of anger in our life. I I was going to pull out anger and do the whole study on anger because anger can lead to very detrimental bad things. And what what tends to happen is our emotions go up and our judgment goes down. And that, that thing of anger, if we didn't have anger, then we wouldn't be created in the image of God. We wouldn't even be able to stand up for things that are right. Because that's what that anger is, propel, uh, is supposed to propel us to do. Righteous indignation is a good thing. It causes us to protect the innocent. It causes us to get mad um, at the right things. But unfortunately, oftentimes, our anger is self-centered. And when it is self-centered, then it becomes ungodly. When anger is centered at others and for the sake of the well-being of others, then it's a good thing. And so we'll, again, we'll see that as we develop this. But Saul is, uh, the test for David is if he gets angry again, I've seen him what he does when he gets angry. This spirit comes upon him, and man, he's ruthless. He literally wants to kill me. Who is the father of murder? The Bible says that Satan. And so he takes on this personification of evil, and it's not good. Verse 9, but Jonathan said, far be it from you, for I, if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me or what? If your father answers you roughly. And, and Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is, a good, there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, May the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do evil, Then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be between, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And so Jonathan communicates with David and he lets him know, all right, I'm going to fill my dad out. I'm going to fill him out for you. I'm going to try to figure out what's going on. And I'm going to determine whether good is set towards you or evil is set towards you. And then I'm going to communicate that to you. And they're going to come up with a way that they're going to do that. But I find it interesting that Jonathan is able to see that God is with his father, that God hasn't given up on his father even though his father has given up on himself and no longer is looking to the Lord. I find that interesting. Also, David or uh, Jonathan tells David, we've made a covenant. 
And let's take this covenant even further. When you come into power, when you come into reign, you need to make sure that you will look out for my house forever. And I think it's neat because back in this day when a new king would be raised up, they would take the family members of the old regime and they would wipe them out. They would kill them because they were the ones that had the right to the throne, especially the young boys, right? And so it's interesting when you get into Second Samuel and David finally gets to take the throne and he's the king now and he has that rightful place of authority. He seeks out Jonathan's family and he finds this young guy named Mephibosheth who means lame. Mephibosheth means lame. And the reason he's lame is because his nurse, when this new regime is coming in, she is carrying him as people are fleeing and she drops him and he becomes crippled in his legs. And David seeks this boy out and he says, from now on, you're going to sit at the king's table and you're going to dine with me. You'll be able to eat with me forever. And the table is going to cover your lameness. The table is going to cover your lameness as we get to come into the palace with our king and he looks out for us and his blood covers our lameness. He makes us righteous. And so just a beautiful picture where right here, Jonathan is like, hey, make sure that when you come into your kingdom, when you get to take the throne, David, that you don't forget my family. Don't do what every other king does and wipe out, annihilates everyone from that family. And again, it's for me just a picture of our God and how gracious he is that we're able to sit at his table and nobody sees our lameness because his righteousness covers us. Verse 17, now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow's the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone easel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go, find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. And so Jonathan comes up with this plan that he's going to have his little guy come out with him into the field. David's going to be hiding in the wilderness. There's going to be a target, and he's going to shoot his three arrows. And if the arrow's on this side of the target, and he tells his lad, hey, they're on this side, then everything's cool, everything's safe. But if he shoots them beyond that target and he sends his lad beyond to go retrieve the arrows, it's just going to be between Jonathan and David. Nobody's going to know what's going on, but that's going to be the sign that, man, you need to go. It's not good. My dad does want to kill you. Verse 24, so then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not eat, uh, say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean, surely he is unclean. 
And so in the law, there was a provision that if you were going to eat at one of the feasts and you were unclean for some reason, ceremonially unclean, then you had a right to 24 hours to be able to get that taken care of. And then you can come to the feast on the second, third, fourth consecutive days. And so that's what Saul's thinking. Saul's thinking, well, the seat's empty. He must be unclean ceremonially. So maybe he's getting that taken care of. I'll see him on the second day. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. Verse 27. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. And so Jonathan just explains to him, and and many commentators would say because of his integrity, I'm sure David probably did go to his family. It's the third day that they made the deal to be back in the wilderness when he's going to shoot the arrows and all of that stuff. And so wherever he is, Jonathan is explaining to his dad that this is what's going on. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, You shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now when his anger is aroused, again, it's wrong. It's wrong because even though he believes what he's saying, it's not true. Saul wants his son to be able to take the throne after he's gone. And so in that case, he wants a dynasty. He wants that legacy to continue on. But the Bible has clearly determined that Saul has already been rejected from being the king. And God has already chosen another. Jonathan understands that God has chosen another in David. And he's willing to submit under what God wants to do. Verse 32. And Jonathan answered said Saul his father and said, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. By, Jonathan, uh, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Unfortunately, oftentimes we don't know the character of a person, even though we're watching it in front of us, until it's directed at us. In this case, the snake of Saul turns on his own son to kill him. And only then does Jonathan truly understand that my dad wants to kill David. He just tried to kill me. And so again, we need to be careful when we watch the character of people, when we watch the nature of individuals that turn on others, it's generally, usually only a matter of time before they turn on us. And so, you know, because we have to be involved in relationships, hold those people at arm's length. Be very careful. You put your mouth, or you put your hand next to a snake's mouth, and it's going to get bit. And so that's a warning That's for us to be able to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Verse 34, so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. Now notice, notice Jonathan's emotional palate here. 
It says fierce anger and grieved. Where is this fierce anger and grieved directed? At David. Towards God. Knowing that his father is doing wrong. It's others centered. When our anger is self-centered is usually when we get in trouble. And so here he recognizes that his father is outside of God's will. And he's willing to do something that is detrimental because you can fight just about everybody and you might come up on top but can you fight God and win Saul is fighting God he's not fighting a person he's fighting the will of God for his life verse 35 and so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out in the field into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad was with him Then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. As we study this chapter, we see that no longer is life going to be the same. The trajectory of life is going to take a different path, a different course. As I reflect on watching and studying the life of Saul, I see a man that began with humble beginnings. A man who God was calling, if you will. He was the people's choice. We recognize that God was going to use King Saul in the life of the nation of Israel to teach them that they shouldn't run ahead of God. They shouldn't request things that God doesn't want to give them at this time. And so we recognize that. We're able to see that. But this is real life. This is historical. These are people that really lived and existed and and things that took place. The Bible is documenting that for us. And so even though there's lessons for us to learn, nonetheless, these are things that are actually happening in life in time. And as you look at the life of Saul, I asked myself as I went back and I read all of the chapters Like, where did he go wrong? The first thing was in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 3. But it was a simple little thing, but it begins to show the character of this man, Saul. Jonathan, his son, goes out and he fights the garrison, and he wins. And then Saul blows the trumpet as they're coming back from the victory. What's that? Saul is willing to take credit for something he didn't do. So that people can think something of him that he's not. That's a pretty low grade character right there. He's not even willing to let his son 
receive the accolades and the applaud that he deserves because he was the one that fought the battle. But it says right there in that chapter that Jonathan fought the battle and Saul blew the trumpet. As you go on in chapter 13, he makes this unlawful sacrifice and that's major. The prophet Samuel tells Saul, hey, I want you to go and wait for me in the camp and I'll be there in seven days. And in seven days, we're going to make an offering to the Lord, a sacrifice. And when we sacrifice to the Lord, then we'll move on with what God wants us to do. Well, seven days comes and goes and Saul begins to look for Samuel the prophet and he's nowhere to be found. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he offers a sacrifice. And that might sound like a small thing to us, but that's a big thing to God because he's usurping the role of somebody else. He's doing what he's not supposed to be doing. He is not a priest. He is not God's prophet. And he takes the role of a priest in offering a sacrifice. And God at that point rejects him from being king. He continues obviously to hold the throne and to continue to go on, but it just goes from bad to worse. In chapter 14, verse 24, he makes a rash vow. And he says, nobody's going to eat food until we win this battle, but these guys are fighting. And Jonathan doesn't hear about that rash vow. And Jonathan takes some honey on a stick and he brings it up to his mouth and he says, man, I was revived when I had that honey. And it comes to find out through all of this stuff and time that Jonathan ate when Saul had made this rash vow. And what is Saul willing to do? He's willing to kill his son on behalf of this vow. And everyone kind of steps up and says, no, dude, that's just dumb. God is using your son Jonathan to give us the victory and he isn't doing anything wrong. He didn't even hear of this vow, lame vow, right? But he's willing to kill his own son because of this rash vow. And what you see is he cares more what people think than what God knows. He cares more what people have an appearance of him than the reality of God. And so you see horrible character. In chapter 15 is the final straw. And again, I just see this merciful God giving him another chance. All right, the wickedness of the Amalekites has come full. Their evil deeds are done. Utterly destroy the Amalekites. And so he puts a ban on the Amalekites. And Saul goes in and he saves the king and he saves the best of the animals. And the reason is he fears the people. That's why he saves the king. But he says, well, we we save the best of the animals so that we can worship God. We can do the religious thing. Isn't God pleased with worship and religious things? And in that chapter, the prophet Samuel says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed than to give the fat of rams. Because you have rejected the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And so that whole account goes into there. And then again, you could see Saul's character come out and you can see this man that is fearful of people as opposed to fearing the Lord. He cares more what people think than he cares what God knows. And that's his crossroads. 
when he stands at this crossroads, over and over, God is giving him an opportunity to take a different path. Over and over, God is saying, humble yourself. Don't be so prideful. Don't insist on your will. And don't care what people think as much as you know what I know. That's difficult. And Saul is an interesting guy in the scriptures. I don't get him fully. I don't know where he'll be in eternity. I don't think he'll be in heaven, but I could be wrong. But I just see this carnal man that cares more about the temporal than anything eternal. Then you have Jonathan and his crossroads and his crossroad of decision. This will change Jonathan's life forever. He will get to see his best friend. And I think Jonathan and David's relationship is one of the sweetest in all of the scriptures as it relates to camaraderie and friendship. Their common denominator was the Lord. And their desire was to glorify the Lord with their lives. And all they wanted was God's will and to be in the center of that will. And I think that's precious. And so no longer is he going to be able to see his best friend. One more time, he'll see him before he dies. And we're going to continue 11 chapters of life like this where David is going to flee and no longer is he going to be in the palace and he's going to be away from his friend. But I just think about his crossroads. Now think about this. Did Jonathan do anything wrong to be at this crossroads and to experience what he's going to experience? He did nothing wrong. He was faithful. He is faithful to God and faithful in the things of God. And then we look at David at his crossroads. And David's life is never going to be the same. No longer is he not going to see his best friend, Jonathan. But he's going to be on the run. He's going to be running from a madman that wants to kill him. And there's going to be encounters where their paths are going to cross. And the king, who has all these subjects and these servants that are at his disposal, he's going to use everything within his power to seek out David and to kill him. Is he going to kill him? No, he can't. Why? Because he's fighting God. But nonetheless, David is at a crossroads. And he will find his life on a different trajectory from this point on. No longer will he be in the palace. No longer will he have the friendship of Jonathan. And now he will be a fugitive, running for nothing that he did. Was David in God's will? Absolutely. He is in the center of God's will, the safest place on earth. How can anyone set out on such a crossroad and be in the will of God? Because God often has his people spend at least some time on a bleak road. And he appoints some of his favorites to spend a lot of time on that road. Think of Job. To no fault of his own but faithfulness. He would find himself on a bleak road for quite a season. Think of Joseph. Again, just because he was hated by his brothers, he would find himself going through incredible challenges and difficulties. But that's what God has cho- had chosen to do what? Something greater, something bigger than both Job and jo- uh, Joseph. Think of Paul and even Jesus who would find themselves on road to no fault of their own because of faithfulness, because they were looking to God, because they were trusting God. 
This crossroad was important in David's life because if God would put David in a place where people must depend on him, God would teach David to depend upon God alone. Not himself, not Saul, not Jonathan, not anyone except God. How does God teach us those lessons? We have to go through these types of things to be able to get that. And you, child of God, are no different than any other child of God. This is God's plan for his kids. This is what he does. This crossroad was important in David's life because if David would be safer now and promoted to king later, David must learn to let God be his defense and his promoter. Who was going to defend David? God was. Who was going to promote David when the time was right? God was. Who was going to stand against God's will in David's life? Nobody. But David had to learn that God is his defense and God is his promoter. In the right time, God would raise him up, but not until he was ready and he had things that he needed to learn. Finally, this crossroad was important in David's life because if David was to be set in such a great position of authority, David must learn to submit to God's authority even if it were through a man like Saul. If you're not willing to submit to the authority in your life, how are you going to submit to the ultimate authority? And oftentimes those authorities are placed in our lives so that we can learn submission. And if you look at the big contrast between Saul and David, at least my observation, I see God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. And he wanted to make sure that David understood that his submission was ultimately to God because there was an authority in David's life. And as you go through the rest of the chapters in 1 Samuel, David has multiple opportunities to kill Saul. And David's heart is so sensitive to God that he says, how dare I even think to come against the Lord's anointed? Dude, he's trying to kill you. <laughs> like, <laughs> at best, that's self-defense, right? David has a, such a sensitive heart to God that he says, how dare I come against the Lord's anointed? I'll close with this quote from Redpath. He says, let God empty you out that he may save you from becoming spiritually stale and lead you ever onward. He is always calling us to pass beyond the things which we know unto the unknown. A throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is God's path for you. Faith is God's plan for you. Powerful, powerful quote. And so we stand at crossroads. We stand where we can go in one direction in life or we can take another direction in life. And oftentimes those are blips on the screen. They don't even mean anything. But understand that they can take us on paths that we never thought we'd be on. So we want to make sure in humility, God lead me, strengthen me, guide me to take the path that you would have me to take. Because I know that my life could be different from here on out as I continue to move forward in this thing called life. And we want to be in the center of God's will, safest place on earth. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what might happen because of it, I'm in the center of God's will, the safest place on earth. So God, be with me. 
God, lead me and guide me, but give me the strength to take the right course. And God will redirect us. I don't know if you guys have ever taken the loop, the long way around the block, and you find yourself back at square one, and you're like, oh, yeah, I was supposed to take that other road. Okay, my bad. You know, hopefully we learn from those things. But nonetheless, God is leading and guiding. Crossroads, we all have them. Let's pray that God help us to take the right path. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example of individuals, Lord, to no fault of their own. We see them on different courses. And so we just pray, Father, that in those times of decision, that you would be with us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us. Father, that we would be sensitive, pliable in your hands, soft, not rigid, not demanding, not insisting, but truly, Lord, wide open to allow you to lead and guide and direct. And so, Father, I pray that you would just um, be with us in the midst of those things for your name's sake, for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.